0: Welcome to Talking Energy, the UK Energy Research Centre podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Jessica Bays, and I'm joined today by UKIP Director, Professor Rob Gross. With COP26 just around the corner, in this episode, we're exploring some of the government's plans and announcements for reaching net zero. So let's jump straight in. The government's been working on bolstering its green credentials ahead of COP26 and last week announced that all of the UK's electricity is going to come from clean energy sources by 2035. Rob, do you think this is feasible?
1: It's going to be very challenging. Um, there's no, there's no question uh, that it's a very stretching target. It's not really a new target, to be honest. It's a, it reflects uh, the advice that the climate change committee gave to the government a year ago or more, and uh, the government accepted that advice earlier this year. So, in in a way, it's it's kind of re-announcing things that they'd already decided they would do. But that slightly doesn't matter, I guess. The, the The key thing is, can we achieve it? Um, Yes, we could. Uh, many things are possible. engineers and uh, and others have done much bigger magic than building uh, lots of renewables. I mean sending people to the moon uh, in the 1960s when the computer power was less than you would have uh, in a in an average uh, smartphone uh, would be one example. but we shouldn't underestimate the challenge uh, that it would uh, require. And one of the reasons for that is that historically, the energy system, it changes quite slowly. Uh, we, we're used to thinking of, of things that change very fast, you know, rapid technological progress. And we get lots of technological progress in energy. Um, but it usually takes a long time to build different types of power stations, to roll out lots of wind farms and other renewables, to build new transmission lines. So uh, 2035 sounds a long way off, but in in it's, it's the day after tomorrow. Um, as far as the energy system is concerned.
0: Yeah, I mean, I read something only yesterday about how it takes 10, 10 years from commissioning to delivery on the ground of wind farms. So, yeah, it's cutting it quite tight and it seems like there might be some bottlenecks ahead. So in the same clean energy announcement, Boris suggested that removing gas from electricity generation would safeguard us against future gas price surges. But with the majority of central heating systems still using gas, how much impact do you think this will really
1: have? That's a very uh, interesting and quite difficult to answer question. Um, one of the other uh, decarbonisation uh, plans uh, that the UK has um, is not just to uh, decarbonise all of the existing electricity that we use, uh, but also to convert um, our homes, uh, many of our homes to run on um, heat pumps, electric heat pumps. So so not just, just uh, building lots of renewables to meet our current electricity demand, uh, but actually to increase the supply of electricity so that we're using electricity instead of gas, uh, not necessarily in all our homes, but in a large number of our homes. Um, so if we did both of those things, then we would have um, considerably or almost entirely... Removed the current reliance that we've got on uh, internationally traded uh, gas. And as we're seeing at the moment with with record high gas prices, uh, energy companies going out of business um, and all of the other sort of news headlines that are surrounding the current uh, gas price uh, um, situation. uh, Then if we can achieve all of that, then that would obviously be a very good thing. I I think what we need to understand, though, is that gas prices will continue to be um, significant for UK households and UK businesses um, for for many years to come, even if we manage to achieve all of our targets. Um, And the reason for that is because we won't be able to convert all of our homes over to electric heating in a hurry, unsurprisingly. Um, and even as we build out renewables, which we're doing at the moment, we still need gas to be the balancing fuel. We're still going to need to be able to balance the variability of renewables. One of the ways, that the main way at the moment that we do that is using gas. So it's a, a very kind of complex whole system change that's required.
0: Yeah. And so I. Um... I remember reading something last year, and in, in fact, one of our own publications was looking at line pack, which is actually the amount of storage provided by gas that's actually within our pipelines. So, I mean, replacing that is going to be a major challenge.
1: Absolutely is going to be uh, a significant challenge. Um, I think what we need to much more actively plan for, and the government um, is starting to, uh, to, to to do this, is... Thinking about all of the flexibility services that um, by which I mean the ability not just to store energy, you know, between, you know, the the, the afternoon or and the evening uh, or to be able to respond quickly if uh, if something goes wrong uh, on on the power network, we're already getting new batteries that are being installed to help stabilise the grid. Uh, and that's terrific uh, it's very exciting and it helps us to in- integrate lots more uh, renewables but it's uh, it's that kind of only really providing that short-term rapid uh, support for the for for the for the grid we need to be thinking about you know much more ambitious amounts of storage you know potentially um, uh, for enough energy to last for several days of low renewables output maybe even thinking about whether we can store, uh, between the seasons, uh, so building up our stores of, of some kind of renewable fuel or some kind of means by which we can uh, store renewable energy when it's plentiful and then using that in the winter and these things are you know they're, you know we're going to need to work very hard uh, to put all of these things in place. The, the, there's two other things that are really uh, important um, in this conversation, not just storage that we kind of take the flexibility and storage of gas or other fossil fuels for granted. The two other ways that we can help um, to, to provide the, the same kind of flexibility, uh, one is that we have more interconnection. So more electricity interconnection with our neighbours uh, and the world in general is interconnected more because that helps to smooth out variations in demand and supply. And the other is is, is the demand side, so smarter stuff being able to control the charging of our new electric vehicle batteries, uh, being able to control the use of our new electric heating in, in clever ways. And not forgetting, of course, it's, you know, the, the number one, the first fuel is energy efficiency. The first things that we, we, we should be doing that, that, that Britain has been quite poor at compared to many uh, of our near neighbours it's just to be more energy efficient, to have better insulated buildings. Um, because that in itself makes us more resilient. But there's definitely a challenge in, in, in providing the same kind of flexibility that we get at the moment, take for granted with fossil fuels.
0: Yeah, certainly. So as part of this shift to clean power, the government indicated there'll be a, a bigger role for nuclear. But with seven out of eight of our current plants due to be de- decommissioned by the end of the decade and only one currently under construction, isn't the government behind the curve on this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really interesting question as well. So one thing that is important to say is that not all nuclear power stations are the same size. So in terms of the amount of electricity generation, the new, uh, the new power station that's under construction at the moment is much bigger, will produce more energy and will be much more reliable because it's uh, hopefully... Uh, because it's uh, because it's newer than some of the older ones uh, that date back to the, um, you know, 40 years or more um, and uh, have had some reliability issues because they're getting old and were smaller. OK, so so we would expect one to be able to replace three or four of the older power stations if if in terms of the amount of energy Generated uh, according to, as long as it all goes according to plan, and the power station is up and running and reliable. Um, But you are completely right. Um, I mean, behind the curve, um, we the UK has had an aspiration to build new nuclear power stations going right back to uh, the mid two thousands when there was an energy review in two thousand six, which concluded that new nuclear. Uh, should be competitive without subsidy. That turned out to be incorrect. Uh, and there was a, you know, a, a, the, a, an energy review, an energy act, an energy bill in 2013 that made new provisions to provide uh, new forms of support for new nuclear power stations. In the end, only one power station came forward. Several of the projects that were in planning and preparation fell fell by the wayside uh, for one reason or another. So we we won't be getting as many new nuclear power stations by the end of this decade as we thought we were going to get at the beginning of the last decade. There's no question about that. It's just proved to be quite difficult to get the all of the pieces in place to build these very large and complex projects.
0: Um, and something I've heard about more recently is small modular reactors. Do you have any thoughts on how they might be able to plug the gap somewhat?
1: Small modular reactors are definitely uh, an interesting future prospect. Um, but one of the things you mentioned, how long it might take to, to, to build a wind farm, you know, 10 years, that's, that's probably on the, on the kind of upper end of the range, actually. I mean, particularly for an onshore wind farm, it can be built quite quickly. But one of the things that takes a long time for a wind farm is all of the kind of you know, consenting and planning. Um, and the same is true for a nuclear power station. You, you know, it takes a long time to do all of the consenting and planning. Um, and uh, for a nuclear power station, the, the, the design of the power station has to be approved. It has to have passed through all sorts of very rigorous uh, tests and checks uh, nationally and internationally. So new and innovative designs like these uh, small modular reactors, they're not approved yet. So before we can even think about how long it would take to build one, we have to take it through that approval process. So I'm not pouring cold water over um, uh, any particular technology. Um, one of the things as UKirk director is important for me to be quite agnostic about technologies because UKirk's a big consortium and there's a range of views. Um, but if we were to want a, a new nuclear power station uh, to start construction soon, we would have to choose a design of nuclear power station that's already been through the approval process so if we're looking to the early 2030s given how long it takes to build we know that the one that's been under construction will have taken the best part of a decade uh, to build so yes absolutely let's let's see what new and innovative designs of nuclear power station there might be that are available including smaller and more modular reactions Uh, reactors rather but I don't think it's uh, in the nuclear case or in any other case it's practical to think that that some technology or other will come riding to the rescue in a hurry because the energy system the big bits of the energy system and the kind of big generators and so on it just doesn't work like that it takes longer than that. Um, So kind of changing
0: the subject a little we're going to focus a bit on offshore wind now so last year via its 10 point plan government set a target of 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, which seems like a stretch target as it essentially quadruples our installed capacity. What do you think will be needed to meet this target?
1: Well, first of all, we need to carry on with the the policies that we've got in place at the moment. We need to carry on to commissioning new offshore wind farms straight away. And we need to avoid any sort of delays uh, in, in planning and consenting. And we need to have a a support environment. So the kind of um, policies, they're not subsidies, but but wind farms are offered long run fixed price contracts. They're called contracts for difference. Uh, we have a, a set of arrangements in place at the moment, and those arrangements need to continue. Uh, those arrangements might be changed in the longer term and in the future, but we need to go through any changes to the policy environment quite gradually uh, because the last thing that we want to do at the moment is to create a hiatus by changing the policies and making investors you know think and wait and question what it is that they want to do.
0: Yeah so the CfD and early policy interventions have been instrumental in bringing the price of wind down. What do you think's next?
1: So you're right the CfD has been important to bringing the price down because it has reduced the amount of risk to which project developers are exposed to in terms of all of the price volatility that we see on energy markets. Um, You might think that developers would be very pleased to get the market price for for electricity at the moment because the market price is so high. It's much, much higher uh, than the generating costs of of an offshore wind farm. So you might think they don't need uh, any kind of form of long run contract anymore. Uh, the thing is that investors have, uh, they look at history um, and they have long memories and they understand and realise that power prices are very high this this winter. But last spring, they were incredibly low. Uh, and this is part of the problem that we're seeing. You know, during Covid, demand was demand collapsed. Prices collapsed as a result. Uh, facilities for producing fossil fuels were mothballed. Then when demand picked up, supply couldn't keep up and prices go through the roof so there's definitely a continued need to provide some kind of price stabilisation because that reduces the risk the reason that that's important is because these things are very uh, they're quite large the big projects offshore wind farms cost hundreds of millions or billions of pounds and so therefore if you make a relatively small reduction to the effectively the interest rate that the project developers need to pay Um, it makes a big difference to the price of the energy that they're able to deliver. So that's important and that continues to be the case. Um, Other things that are important are thinking uh, uh, technology. Uh, Certainly, there's been an amazing improvement in our ability, the skills and the supply chain of the offshore wind uh, development industry. They've got so much better and more uh, experienced and practised at, um, at building these things, so that helps to keep uh, the costs down. The, the turbines are bigger, the towers are taller, and that helps to improve the the capture, you know, the performance and the efficiency of the wind farms. Um, looking into the future, I think we also want to um, have ongoing innovation. Think about where we can position these offshore wind farms because if we can move them further out to sea, we get a more reliable wind source. That's important. If we can put them in different uh, locations, so maybe, for example, moving to the west coast of, uh, of Great Britain, um, building off uh, the west coast of Scotland or, 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 or Ireland, it gives us an opportunity, perhaps, to um, get uh, power generation at times of the day or times of the year when the when the eastern side of the country is, is calm. So that, again, could help. Uh, with our long run kind of cost reductions. So there's lots lots of things, but there's still a need for policy to help to de-risk. And I think that's, that's an important thing for the government to be continuing to bear in mind.
0: Yeah. So only two of National Grid's future energy scenarios see the UK as actually meeting the 40 gigawatt goal by the end of the decade. The other two see us hitting them in 2031 and 2035. What else do you think can be done to speed things up?
1: Um, that's, again, a, a very interesting question. Um, it's, it's quite difficult to say with any certainty um, whether we can be sure to qu- quadruple the amount of, uh, of, of offshore wind that we've been able to install in the last 20 years in the next nine years or in the next eight years, nine months and, uh, and seven days. So I think that what the the important thing is that we need to have uh, a stable policy environment. Uh, We need to make sure that there aren't any delays uh, to the consenting and permitting regime. Uh, In parallel to building the wind farms, we need to make sure that we've got the grid infrastructure that we need in order to make effective use of the energy that they generate. Um, And if we don't quite manage to build 40 gigawatts by 2030, but we build it by 2031, I'm not sure that that massively matters.
0: No. So something you touched on earlier was supply chains and uh, research published by Renewable UK has calculated that investment in offshore wind manufacturing has surged to more than 900 million this year. And the number of people directly employed by the wind sector is also set to significantly rise. Can you tell me a bit about your initial findings from your green jobs project here at Ukirk and if you think offshore wind might actually help with the government's levelling up agenda?
1: So I think the, the government obviously does think that offshore wind helps with the levelling up agenda uh, and that's one of the reasons that they are as keen as they are on building offshore wind. Uh, the reason that, the, that it has the potential to help with the levelling up agenda is, is purely the sort of geography of where offshore wind farms uh, can be constructed uh, off the kind of northeast coast of of, of England, for example, uh, quite close to uh, industrial areas that have seen some decline, uh, and where some of the industrial decline that's taken place has been in industries that are aligned with the kinds of things that we need to do to build an onshore to, to build an offshore wind farm, like dock facilities and some heavy engineering. So there's an awful lot of stuff that's required um, to go into uh, an offshore offshore wind farm. Historically, um, the United Kingdom provided some of the supply chain and some of the bits of kit that you need, uh, but historically not all of it. In fact, in some instances, not really very much of it. And um, it's quite well known that um, Denmark and Germany uh, and a number of other uh, near neighbors uh, have been very successful at the um, at creating in a relatively short space of time a wind industry and then exporting that technology uh, to countries all all around the world um, it, a few years ago five years ago even certainly ten years ago that wasn't a policy priority in in in, the, in this country in the same way as it might have been overseas now it is now a policy priority. And so, we need to be thinking uh, much more kind of creatively and actively about how we engage that supply chain. Um, there's, that's very, very complicated. I, I'm not sure it's possible to give you a, a kind of definitive answer. Uh, we could run many podcasts on industrial policy, industrial strategy, and, um, and manufacturing, uh, and all of those things. Um, but one of the kind of key ingredients of um, One of the reasons, one of the success factors for those other countries that have got uh, a wind industry has been a stable policy environment. So I'm I'm perhaps, you know, saying the same thing over again. I don't want to bang bang a drum too much, but having supportive and consistent policy, a clear kind of pipeline and plan, uh, effective policies for delivering against that plan. That's the kind of foundation stone of making it attractive for investors to come to the United Kingdom and to and bring more of that kind of manufacturing capacity here.
0: So whilst the 40 gigawatt target sounds like a challenge, recent analysis published by Imperial College calculated that we'll actually need 108 gigawatts of offshore wind to reach the government's clean electricity goal by 2035. There seems to be quite a disconnect there. Do you think the gap can be plugged to reach their new 2035 target?
1: Whether or not we could build... Uh, another on top of the forty gigawatts uh, that are already uh, proposed for for twenty thirty. It doesn't seem particularly likely that we could build another, you know, sixty eight gigawatts or whatever it might be in the in the subsequent five years. We I think we need to be careful about the the putting all of our eggs in the offshore wind basket. Offshore winds is terrifically important and uh, it's a huge opportunity uh, for this country. You know, because we we are an island and uh, we have you know particular conditions, seabed conditions, and so on, that make offshore wind an attractive proposition. Um, if we are going to get, uh, if we're serious about net zero, and if we are going to decarbonize our electricity whilst at the same time expanding the use of electricity, we shouldn't be under any illusions about the fact that we will need an awful lot more low carbon new forms of electricity generation. Um, but one thing I think it's quite important to bear in mind is that in, in other other countries, uh, that have a, a similar population to the UK um, use a lot more electricity than the UK because for example, Japan, so if you think about as a comparison country, it's got a larger population. Um, but the population is is, is is you know not dissimilar to that. We, we've got 60 or seventy million, they've got hundred 120 million uh, people. They're, they're an island as well. They use three times as much electricity as we do. Uh, And the reasons for that are that they use electricity for heating and cooling more than we do. They have a lot of industry, heavy industry that this country no longer has. And so I think we need to look at what the UK is trying to achieve in the context of some of the, um, you know, what happens, what has happened internationally. So if we think about how much wind we'd like to build here, we could make a comparison with how much wind was built in Germany. Uh, When they were building a lot of wind farms during the mid 2000s, for example, Uh, we can look at what's being achieved in China. Uh, We can look at the renewables uh, developments that have taken place in Australia or in the United States. And so, um, you know, this is a stretching target, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Uh, It just means that, you know, we do need to be throwing everything at it. That's a mix of renewables uh, in particular, but lots of other things as well to make that system work.
0: So I guess a lot of this hopefully will be made clearer when the government publishes its net zero plan, um, which hopefully should be soon. That's been great, Rob. So thanks very much. It sounds like there's a lot to be getting into and hopefully we can revisit this post-cop. Thanks for listening. To find out more about UKERC, you can visit our website at www.ukerc.ac.uk.